In 1682, astronomer and mathematician Edmund Halley discovered a comet. But he was not the first to do so. After a few calculations, Halley realized that others had likely discovered it too, including Johannes Kepler 75 years earlier in 1607. Looking back through time, Halley realized this particular comet might be appearing every 76 years and thus predicted its return in 1758. Sadly, Halley died before he could see his prediction come to pass. And like a gift from the heavens, the famous comet that now bears Edmund Halley's name appeared on Christmas night of 1758. A contemporary of Halley's, the French comet hunter Charles Messier, in his search for the elusive comets, unwittingly ended up making a list of some of the most beautiful objects in the universe. In his telescope, the galaxies, nebula, and star clusters looked to him like balls of fuzz, just like a comet, but they didn't move. So Messier compiled the non-moving fuzzy things as objects to avoid. Little did he know what they were. But would Halley and Messier ever have dreamed that scientists in the 21st century would be hypothesizing about comets carrying to Earth the necessary ingredients for biological life? The origin of life remains perhaps the greatest scientific mystery of our time. How did life begin? Without God as the ultimate creator of life, many numerous ideas have been put forth. How could nature have done it all on her own? Even if science were to come up with a plausible, natural explanation, it would still not eliminate God as the ultimate explanation for the origin of the universe and life within it. In the same way that explaining the mechanism of a coffee maker would do away with a barista. Could God have made comets and stars in order to make the dust of the earth? The Bible doesn't tell us. Genesis simply says God made us from the dust of the ground. We are not given the specific methods behind how God made everything. Increasingly, modern science often explains how complex arrangements of atoms, molecules, stars, planets, and people have come to be in terms of collisions and explosions, meteors and comets striking the earth, moons and planets colliding, stars exploding, volcanoes erupting, we should stop and ask how such destructive forces are capable of yielding such order and regularity. On this two-part episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss the wonders and mysteries of comets. From where do they come? What are they made of? How do they behave? What is their structure? And are they capable of delivering the necessary compounds for biological life on Earth? Can such molecules survive interstellar travel and a fiery plummet through Earth's atmosphere? And how, finally, might comets point us to the glory of God? Wayne and I invite you to come and see for yourself on this two-part episode of Good Heavens. Well, Good Heavens, Wayne, it's another episode of Good Heavens. And we are going to be talking about some of the great goodness of the good heavens, some of the, one of the most mysterious objects, well, many objects, known to us or not known to us. They are our mystery. Comets. 
What's up with comets? We're going to talk about comets today. Uh, hi, Dan. It's good to be back on Good Heavens. And uh, comets have been uh, looked up uh, and wondered about for a long time, and people have made different things of them when they come along, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but we want to get to talk, talking about the origin of life. And can light, could objects from space, like comets or meteorites, help life get started if you go back if you go along with evolution and you life has to start from non-living matter so the, it brings up the question of how could that happen how could life get started right without god right uh are comets the dominoes of the solar system bringing biological pizzas to planets through here hither and yon <laughs> biological pizzas or not or, or, or kind of biological building blocks or something. Yes. Is the idea, yes. I guess. Uh, delivering a pizza. That's, we got some inorganic. We got some organic material for this little planet called Earth. Uh, hey, what did you order? A little, little bit of a uh, little bit of carbon dioxide, a little bit of sulfur. Eh? You know, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't do pineapple. No, we got a, just a little carbon monoxide, some sulfur. Uh, you know, CO2. We got an, we got an order for some formaldehyde <laughs> and uh, cyanoacetylene and uh, a few other things and some benzene if you can get some. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And uh, if, if it's the wrong pizza, it's a long way back to the oven to get a new one. So you're kind of stuck with whatever it delivers. Um, but comets are fascinating, despite of all of our bad attempts at, uh, at joking about them. Comets are fascinating. And one thing I learned, Wayne, about comets, as I was studying for this, is that comets originate in our solar system. But we'll keep that fact there for just a second because we want to start this with uh, some scripture, which you have prepared, for just such an occasion. What Bible verse might be appropriate for talking about comets tonight? Well, yeah, I'm going to talk, uh, read a little bit, Dan, from Revelation chapter 4. And this is a section where it, it's, it has creatures in heaven who are praising God, basically. And uh, so they, it says that day and night they never stop saying, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Hmm. And that would include comets. Everything uh, that's out there, God created. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have God as the creator, these comets are equally mysterious because you have to ascribe some place for them. Where did they come from? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, maybe they there's a comet hangout on the edges of the solar system somewhere, and I think uh, the traditional name for that is the Oort cloud, that some believe that uh, our solar system is encircled or like in, inside of a halo of, uh, of comets just hanging out and, you know, waiting for their turn to go toward the sun and back. But uh, we don't have any evidence for the Oort cloud something we can talk about later but uh the Oort cloud was purport, uh, was uh, purported 
uh, to exist by uh, a, an astronomer named Jan van Oort. I believe his name was. He was a Dutch astronomer. Um, where are all these comets coming from? Well, maybe there's a cloud of comets on the outside of the solar system that uh, we can't see. But anyway, comets are really cool, and they are native to our sol- solar system because of their orbits. Um, and that's the neat thing that I learned, that, that comets are uh, our neighbors who show up every once in a while. They're like in-laws. Every once in a while they come over for Christmas maybe and hang out and leave. But uh, they, there's, they have a very elongated elliptical orbit, which is basically the fingerprint that tells astronomers that they are from or are a part of our solar system. Yeah, so, um, Dan, there's, there's really uh, kind of three different classes of comets, uh, the main groups of comets mm-hmm. the, the the most nearby ones are what's called the jupiter family comets and they're called the jupiter family comets because they've been influenced a lot by jupiter jupiter actually captures some of them some of them crash into jupiter now and then um like i think it was 1994 the shoemaker levy comet uh it crashed into jupiter and we watched what happened uh, from that and then uh, then there's a, another group called the Halley uh, Comets. And uh, the Halley group of comets, uh, they are not, they're a little farther out and a little longer orbits than the Jupiter family comets. And the Jupiter family comets have, are close to the plane of the planets, the ecliptic plane. Their, their orbits are not mm. tilted tilted very much. But the Halley-type comets have a whole variety of angles, and some of them are very highly inclined or very tilted orbits, and including Halley's Comet. It's a very tilted orbit, it's like 60 or 70 degrees or something, if I remember right. So Halley's, hmm. the Halley-type comets are uh, little longer orbits that would take them out probably – you know, farther than the than Pluto, but they're they're not out by Pluto. They're up in tilted orbits. Then there's a, the long period comets. So long period comets have orbital periods of more anything more than 200 years. Mm. But um, really, the the long period comets have a wide range of of the size and scale of them. So some of them are so long and skinny in those orbits that uh, if you if you drew out the orbit, it would look like a straight line. Mm. And uh, some of them would have really long orbital periods, like millions of years. Mm. Some of them are more like 100,000 years. But, you know, that doesn't mean that they've, they've tra- traveled over the whole orbit. Many of them have not. Many of the long-period comets, or maybe all, almost all of them, have only traveled over a small part of their orbit. Mm. Uh, but we do occasionally see long-period comets, but long-period comets are not seen nearly as often as the other comets. We saw just recently, just a couple of months ago, Comet Neowise. Comet Neowise. It was a beautiful comet, uh, first discovered in March of this year, just as the pandemic broke out. Uh, here comes this comet. So if you're superstitious, hmm, I wonder what that means. But uh, no, it, it was not an omen or anything, but it was a beautiful, had a beautiful tail. 
uh, visible with the naked eye, no telescopes required. And uh, it is, I believe, now you, you might correct me on this, but I believe NEOWISE is a rare long-period comet because it's not, according to the astronomers' reports that I've read, that it's not supposed to return for another 6,800 years. But uh, if you had a chance to see it, you could. everybody was taking pictures of it. It was online. Uh, I saw it with my naked eye. I went out to, to, to our star location where we like to go. And just saw it there on the west, on the northwest horizon, just with a beautiful train, very visible, very beautiful, very bright, and uh, that was exciting to see. Comet Neowise. I didn't get to see that one. Oh, sorry to hear that. So, yeah, I've, in fact, Dan, I have an interesting picture of Halley's comet that someone actually gave me, mm. and it's a someone was taking a picture of Halley's comet, and they got a good picture of it. But if if you look on the picture. There is a a meteor streaking across in the opposite direction. Oh wow! As Halley's going one way, there's a meteor going the other way, and they somebody took this picture and gave it to me. So that was cool. I learned that uh, our friend uh, Tycho Brahe, I think he discovered uh, just five years after he discovered the first uh, super, supernovae in 1572. He was, uh, he, I don't know if he discovered it or studied it in greater detail, but I know he tried to measure it. Uh, he measured, uh, he tried to measure the, the parallax to see if it was within our atmosphere, and there was no parallax, which meant to him that it was far away and uh, above the realm of the moon back then. But uh, his was the Great Comet of 1577, just five years after the supernovae. Right. And um, it, uh, I think that is a long period comet as well, but. Uh, these, you know, Johannes Kepler also was fascinated by these things. Uh, so was the the whole world for a long time. These things, and the, and they're still mysterious, despite all the science that we have. These things are still uh, wonderfully mysterious. I mean, we don't really know where they come from. Uh, we've never seen sort of the, the comet cave where the, all the comets hang out. We just <laughs> assume these things, you know. But uh, but they're fascinating and they're mysterious. Yes, there's been spacecraft sent up to to find out more about comets. So uh, there are spacecraft that have flown through a comet's tail mm. and and collected samples from the tail of the comet. And they have there's a lot of studies of the spectra of a comet. So comets have two, two tails. They're, they have an ion tail, mm-hmm. which is the bright part of a more brighter thing that you see and there's a dust tail and um, the bright tail is pushed away from the sun mm. so the two tails go in different directions as they come off the top of the comet because one of them is pushed out by the sun and the dust tail is not really okay. affected by the sun as much there's a lot of science that's been done about what they're what they're made of. Yeah, and I, I was fascinated to find out that the... So you have the, the very center, or the nucleus. I mean, we tend people tend to think of comets as like a snowball, which is, eh, it's not really a good analogy. The, 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 the center of a comet, you would think it's this giant icy rock, like a glacier-sized or something. And it's not. These things um, can run anywhere from a half a mile to six or seven miles in range, um, there are ones that are smaller than that, um, but there are some that can 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 get to about. Uh, I mean, the, the sizes of these things are not very big at all. 
in terms of the nucleus of the comet, the actual hard thing. Yes. And um, one thing I found totally fascinating about comets was the thing that astronomers call the coma. Yeah. It's not the same thing as what happens when you're almost dead. <laughs> a coma of the comet, actually coma is, a, is the word hair. And so the, the fuzzy ball that you see in the front of, of a comet as it goes towards the sun is its coma. And basically it's like a continuously erupting volcano where the rock or whatever is, is producing these particles that are being uh, blown against by the sun. And this outer shell, this coma, these things can be enormous, Wayne. So you could have a little tiny rock, a tiny six or seven miles or something. You can have this rock uh, that is spewing all these gas and ions and all these chemicals and everything. But the coma, the actual ball of gas that surrounds the rock itself, is is enormous. Some of these things, some of these comas of comets are enormous. So for like Haley, uh, uh, Halley's Comet, when it was here just a year before I graduated high school, it was here in 1986. I didn't, I didn't know about it then. But the coma, the gaseous dome ball around the hard rock, uh, icy rock of, of, of Halley, was 625,000 miles across. Wayne, that's almost as big as our sun. This and and these things are for the size of the center of the comet itself. It's remarkable that these gaseous orbs are as big as they are. Yeah, and I think uh, Hale Bop was one of the largest and biggest, brightest ones. Bop was uh, ninety. Hale Bop was nineteen ninety seven. Um, okay. The I just looked it up. The coma, the gaseous ball around Hale Bop. Uh, that was here in 1997. Hale-Bopp was a long-period comet. The last time it was here was in 2000 BC, they believe. So it's a 6,000-year or so period comet. But the icy rock center was 24 miles in in diameter. But get this, the coma, the gaseous dome around the rock itself was 1.2 million miles across. Well, <laughs> That's incredible. Well, let me talk a little bit about the... Uh, uh, what a coma is made of, and this has to do with your your comment about the tail and stuff, and the coma. Mm-hmm. So comets have a lot of icy materials in them, and it's not just water ice. There's water ice, and there's dust, and but there's also other compounds. So like, if you took water ice, Dan, and you started out by Jupiter and you moved toward the sun, uh. Jupiter is just a little bit more than 5 AU uh, from from uh, the sun. So you, you get around 5 AU, and ice would start to um, sublimate. So the, the ice solid goes directly to gas in the vacuum of space. So ice starts to disappear. It sort of comes apart, and it turns into a vapor um out at about 5 AU. So when a comet gets to around, it varies, but around 3 AU or maybe 2 AU from from the sun, it starts to vaporize all this material. And there's things in it like not just water ice, there could be something like methane, there could be sulfur monoxide or carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, the whole list of gases that can be in there. Um, some of them are organic materials. 
So when, if a comet is out uh, farther from the sun than Jupiter, let's say, it's very cold, and something like methane ice might exist in it. It could have ammonia ice maybe if it's cold enough. But as it gets closer to the sun, all these volatile compounds like this start to come out, and they they make the coma and the uh, the tail that we see. There's lots of volatile things that in on Earth, if they're at the surface of the Earth, they would boil into a gas. And so out in space, they only stay in the comet where it's real, real super cold. So as this comet comes close to the sun, they're driven out. And that's all the stuff that we see in the coma and in the tail. So if a comet were to, let's say there was a comet that came close to the Earth. It sort of, let's say it just kind of flew by the Earth. Uh, even by the time it got to Earth's orbit, it would already be giving off all these gases and stuff. So because Earth's neighborhood is a is a very hot neighborhood to a comet because it's used to where it, uh, very cold areas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We should mention briefly, um, as in, in a comet's orbit, I mean, think of a circle that is kind of squished. And you get an ellipse. And some of these comets, as you said earlier, their their elliptical orbits around the sun are so long it looks like a straight line. But think of a, a torpedo cigar, maybe, if you will. And a lot of the comets have this uh, this squished ellipse orbit. They're so long. But two terms, just to give people some, some terminology, a couple of terms. When basically a comet's orbit, all the comets are, are in our solar system, and they all orbit the sun just like planets orbit the sun but they have these long eccentric elliptical orbits so they are our distant neighbors and they do orbit our sun so at the point where a comet does basically a u-turn around the sun you know it's uh, think of the sun like throwing a rock the gravity of the sun throws the comet back you know and um, but when the comet goes behind the sun uh, that's called its perihelion correct am i getting that right it's perihelion is that right? Yes, that's the point that's that's the point that's closest to the sun along its orbit. Yeah, the opposite end is called aphelion. Uh comets are small objects, right? And any small object is relatively it's relatively easy for something to alter its orbit. And when a comet comes close to the sun, especially if it, you know closer it is to the sun, the more it's orbit is going to be changed and there's a lot of comets that actually crash into the sun and they or they might break apart as they go around the sun and then they just kind of scatter as little little pieces um so uh a comet a comet orbit is altered whenever it comes close to a planet or the sun and so especially a a, a comet that's a short period comet. It probably has its orbit altered relatively frequently. The most spectacular perihelion, or the most anticipated perihelion, was Comet Ison. Comet Ison was discovered, and it was it was going to make a it was going to shave the Earth. It was going to come really close to the Earth. And if you were online in 2012 and you were watching, a lot of people thought it was going to crash into the Earth. Some people thought it was planet Nibiru. <laughs> It was crazy, uh, the interest that this comet had. But but people were wondering, what was it going to do 
when it went around the sun. Was it going to brighten? People thought it was going to be spectacular. And so all eyes and telescopes were trained on ISON as it disappeared around the sun. So there was this uh, kind of vigil, if you will. Everybody watched it disappear behind the sun, professional astronomers. There was online stuff. And it went behind the sun, and astronomers had like a—they predicted when it should pop out of the other side. And so the time for it to show up on the other side came and went. And they said, well, Comet Ison is dead. (laughs) (laughs) I remember this vividly. And so everybody's like, Comet Ison's dead. Comet Ison's dead. Doesn't look like it's going to make it. And then shock of shocks to everybody. It reappears. (laughs) And everybody's like, no way. It's alive. And so literally like the Associated Press and USA Today, November 29th, 2013, this is a quote from USA Today Associated Press, quote, a comet that gained earthly following, a comet that gained earthly following because of its bright tail visible from space was initially declared dead after essentially grazing the sun, end quote. And then, uh, a gentleman named Carl Battams, who was the NASA Comet Ison Observing Campaign Chief. Uh, he was a NASA, a NASA guy. Thanksgiving Day 2013. After impressing us yesterday, Comet Ison faded dramatically overnight. We understandably concluded that Ison had succumbed to its passage and died a fiery death. Except it didn't. <laughs> and then this was the this was the quote I was thinking of New York Times Friday November 29th 2013 quote astronomers are marveling at the death and apparent resurrection of a comet that dove close to the sun on Thanksgiving day end quote <laughs> how about that yeah well <laughs> the heavens declare the glory of god and they remind us they remind us right right <laughs> anyway a fun aside there but you know it it does bring up the idea that that we get excited when these things show up i mean it's not just for science nerds when you have this wonderful fantastic sight in the sky people kind of get crazy i mean you know it's like it 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 may not a comet may not actually deliver the biological ingredients to our planet, but boy, does it stir up the bio- biology that's down here, doesn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's still kind of an interesting fireworks show. I think it was Ke- uh, Kepler who called who called it uh, God's fireworks. Um, did you want to talk about the the the? Uh, I think you wanted to, to to briefly discuss this possibility of, as you said in the beginning, to discuss whether or not a comet would be a viable um, contender. Uh, to have uh, transported the necessary biological ingredients for for us to have life. Right. So this is part of uh, uh, the science about the origin of life on Earth. Now, Dan, you know, I I go along with the Bible, and I don't believe in evolution, but Mm -hmm. it's not that I don't know about it, and it's not that I don't study it. So I'm pretty familiar with the, the basics with what scientists say about the origin of life. So okay, so we were. I was talking about how comets, and and meteorites sometimes can be this way. They can have organic material in them. So Earth has so much life on it, right? And uh, this is a wonderful thing about Earth. It's why we can live here. But um, how did all the organic material for planet Earth come from, get here? If life evolved on Earth. 
where did the organic material, the raw material for that come from? So one idea that, that scientists have is this goes back to the, what scientists uh, say when they, they think that the, our planet and our solar system formed from a big nebula that collapsed and rotated into a disk and then the planet formed and all of that. And we've talked about that before, Dan. But so um, if you're talking about a comet or an asteroid out in space, they have organic materials in them. Where did they get the organic stuff? You're right. Right. Well, in their in their naturalistic theory, okay, without without supernatural creation, they go back to nebulas in space. We look at a picture of a nebula in space. It has all these colors and it's beautiful, right? Well, there are scientists who've looked at spectra, the light coming from those nebulas. And you can see from the spectra, from the lines in the spectra, you can tell what atoms are there and you can figure out some of the molecules that are there and what kind of chemical compounds are there. And scientists have looked into this. So, for example, they found in some nebulas there are uh, things like some of the amino acids. Now, amino acids, there's lots of different types of amino acids and amino acids are small organic compounds. Uh, they 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 may have um, just a couple of carbon atoms, or they may be small, or they may have three, five, ten, and may have a, a, a ten carbon atoms, so they can be a little larger. But carbon can make a lot of different molecules. Carbon is a very versatile element that when you you get hydrogen, oxygen, carbon. And, and like nitrogen together, and they can form all kinds of things. Well, so an amino acid is, is significant because in a living cell, proteins are made of amino acids. But it only, only as far as life we know, the, from what we've learned about the cell and biochemistry, only... Um, uh, the, the proteins in a, in a living cell is what's called is made up of amino acids in a chain, and there's it has to be a certain amino acids. There's only about 22 amino acids that are used in living things. Mm. Even though mm-hmm. there's lots more than that mm-hmm. of different amino acids, only 22 of them are found in living things. And there's another special requirement about amino acids and other organic chemicals. Organic chemicals are um, have a complex shape in three dimensions. And when you put things together in three dimensions, sometimes there's uh, more than one order. You can have the same parts put in different orders. Right. And it's like the handedness of our left, left and right hands. Okay. So our, our left and right hands... Dan, we have the same parts in our hands, right? Yeah. And uh, but the parts are arranged in a different different order, and that's what makes our hands mirror images of each other. And there's a lot of organic molecules that work that way; mm. they're mirror images of each other. Mm. All right. So that means that say let's say you have amino acids out in space and a nebula. Now, when they form naturally in 
in in space or somewhere that's not inside a cell, they tend to be what's called a racemic mixture. And that means that they're a 50-50 mix normally of left-handed and right-handed. Naturally, they tend to form in a mix, a 50-50 mix of both types. But in the cell, only the left-handed type the low, the left-handed form of amino acids can be used to make up a protein. Wow. Living cells never use right-handed amino acids. Wow. And if you tried to make a protein with a right-handed amino acid in it, there would be nothing left. <laughs> well, it messes it all up because the the sequence determines the shape of the molecule. It's the three-dimensional shape of it when it all folds up that makes it work in the cell. And if if you have a, a molecule that's the wrong kind or the wrong amino acid in the sequence, it messes the shape all up. And then it won't work, or it could even be destructive in the cell. Mm. That's amino acids and proteins. The cellular function, in order to have biological, uh, in order to have life at the cellular level, the amino acids have to be of the left-handed variety right, and nothing else. Yep. That's amazing. That's amazing. Another example is just the opposite. Sugars. We like sugar, right? Yes, too much. <laughs> well, living things are made up of a lot of sh- sugars, and there's lots of different types of sugars. And um, sugars in living things are always only right-handed mm. uh, molecules. Wow. They're never the left-handed. Wow. So if you're going to make a if you're going to make a cell out of chemicals, Dan, you've got to find a way to get only left-handed amino acids and only right-handed uh, sugars and carbohydrates. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, how does that happen naturally? Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.